listening to Liberty Lighthouse. Join the conversation now. Call or text 64-MY-RIGHTS. That's 646-974-4487. Hello, my fellow patriots and freedom fighters, and welcome to Liberty Lighthouse. I am, of course, your host, Peter Serafine, and today I have a guest with me. We have uh, John Emmons, congressional candidate for the 6th District of Pennsylvania, trying to unseat a Democratic member of the House of Representatives. So we're going to talk to John here in the first segment. Depending on how that goes, that's going to determine what we talk about in the second segment. So why don't we just jump in and start talking to John? You have just entered the Liberty Lighthouse, where we cut through the fog of politics with common sense and logic. Coming to you from Pennsylvania, the state of independence. And now, here he is, author of the book, Progress Really? U.S. Navy veteran and your host, Peter Serafine. So, Mr. John Emmons, thank you very much for joining me here in the Liberty Lighthouse. Uh, You are running to unseat a Democrat House member at the, well, right now, uh, in the 6th District of Pennsylvania, if I have all of my notes correct. Yes, that is correct. Uh, The Pennsylvania 6th District, which is all of Chester County and the southern third of Berks County, it's the new district that was created back in 2018 that helped lead to this becoming a Democrat uh, uh, incumbent at this point. For those of you who are not in Pennsylvania and you want to look at a map, that is, uh, well, Redding is part of your district, if I remember correctly. Right. Redding is in Berks County. And uh, we in Chester County, we're one of the infamous four or five collar counties around Philadelphia. So there's Delaware County, Chester County, Montgomery County and Bucks County that uh, notoriously are the collar counties. We're the buffer zone around Philadelphia. Okay, so (laughs) you uh, you said that this is one of the districts that was created in 2018. Well, would you say it was gerrymandered? It most definitely was. What they did in our area, they took the the district that was centered in Lancaster County and actually made that even stronger Republican. So that I believe today that's an R15 or an R17 district. And then they, they weakened the other ones to the east. And then all all of those districts to the east got picked off by a Democrat. Nice. Okay. Yep. So while since we you know brought up gerrymandering, um, uh, how do you feel about the, uh, the the drawing of districts lines? I know that there's a movement here in Pennsylvania called Fair Districts PA, and they seem to have some pretty good ideas about how to handle this. Do you have any better ideas? Well, I'm not sure I have any better ideas. I think um, if you think back historically. Uh, what what the Republicans had done back in uh, after the 2010 census uh, actually opened the door to what happened in 2018 because they the, the districts were so gerrymandered that it, it really was very difficult to defend that. Uh, for example, the district, the PA six district before comprised pieces of, of like four or five different counties. And then there was another, the PA seventh, 
level was also five different counties. So uh, that left the door open. So I don't think that was right either. So I'm not, you know, I'm not partisan on this. So I think the, the process that was in place uh, was was prone to abuse. And what honestly what happened was the Republicans abused it back in the, again, after the 2010 census. And what the Democrats did was they didn't wait for their next opportunity, which would have been after the 2020 census. They went ahead and decided they were going to force the issue back in 2017 going into 2018 to try to impact the election. So they actually went about it through the court system and were supported ultimately by the courts. So I think there there needs to be a better system. I, I'm not sure what that system is because uh, somehow it, it can't be done by political appointment because that will just remain to be political. But uh, somehow it needs to be evenly balanced as much as possible in, in good common sense. Uh, and one thing I would say is as much as possible, I, I know this is impossible, but as much as it's possible, it would be good to have whole counties be a core part of of a district. You know, in, in Pennsylvania, well, actually across the country, each congressional district is comprised of over 700, just over 700,000 people. So, you know, it, it is very difficult. I think we're actually one of the unique ones now in our area that uh, Chester County proper with a piece of Berks County actually constitutes a district. But uh, I'm sure that those are few and far between. Right. Um, I actually did a whole episode here at the Liberty Lighthouse on the idea of gerrymandering and different ways uh, that it could be solved. Um, my neighbor across the street, a, a liberal fella, but actually a a liberal fella who who thinks relatively logically. Um, I know contradictory, but he uh, <laughs> he had the idea that all districts, you know, can have no more than four corners when they're drawn, so they're all you know trapezoidal, square, rectangle. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a pretty good idea. Um, I agree with you. The whole whole county idea, where a uh, a uh, district line can't cross a county line, um, I, I like that idea as well. All right. Well, you know, since we're talking Pennsylvania specific stuff here, gerrymandering and fair districts, PA. I of the questions I wrote down for you, there's one other that is Pennsylvania specific, and the rest of them are all, hey, you're going to Congress, so let's talk about big picture stuff. So the, the, the only other Pennsylvania-specific question is, do you support uh, Governor Tom Wolf's coronavirus response? And given that he just, uh, I believe it was yesterday, extended the emergency order for yet another 90 days, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not thrilled with him. No, there's very few people in Pennsylvania who are. And quite honestly, I think we all should be appalled by what's happened in Pennsylvania this year. Now, I think almost every person you talk to, myself included, I think back in April, there was another question out there. We're still learning. Makes sense to take a pause, step back, um, see what was going on, and then move forward. But from what, the, the middle of May onward, um, it feels like it is totally partisan, that the, the whole intent is to keep the, the economy of Pennsylvania uh, suppressed. Um, and I think you know most people believe, on both sides now, actually, most people believe that what's going on is, is, is all political. 
And um, what we see in our neck of the woods, you know, Chester County is the most affluent county in Pennsylvania. And uh, the, the thing about this type of thing, it affects everyone equally, whether you're Republican, Democrat, Independent. People are were put out of jobs. Everything was done very arbitrarily. What's an essential business? What's a non-essential business? You can you can go and, for example, one of the classic ones is you could go and get an abortion, but you couldn't go to church. Uh, very very arbitrary. Um, so. Yes, people people have been hurting. Um, you know, in my own particular case, as I have been talking to people since Memorial Day, every every single person talks about this, and then they also talk about the security or lack of security, and they talk in terms of either being concerned, alarmed, or terrified. And as you as you talk with people about that, what's happened is, you know, over the course of of the last, say, nine months, if you were to talk to someone nine months ago and mention the word security, they would immediately think in terms of national security in China and Russia, Iran. Now, if you, if you mention security, you don't have to mention it. They will bring it up first and foremost. They're talking about their job, their business, their family. Well, the kids, what happens with the kids going back to school? Oh, wait a minute. They're not going back to school. Plans change every two weeks. Uh, you know, what we, what we've heard literally recently the last two days. Now grandparents are being pulled in to where they're being the teachers and the proctors because the parents have to go back to work. So you're, you're getting all those dynamics happening. And for the most part, most people believe that this did not need to happen. They're the, that the, the Wolf administration is doing this intentionally and, um, you know, trying to influence the outcome here in Pennsylvania, especially since Pennsylvania is a swing state. So um, there really is a lot of animosity building up both within the Republican uh, groups, but actually the Democrats as well, because he, he's hurt us all equally. Well, my first thought when you say security is civil unrest, and that's why I don't leave my house anymore without my Taurus 85. Um, that's right. The other thought that came up while you were speaking um, was Governor Wolf and extending this emergency order again uh, for for another ninety days? He's only he's been governor of Pennsylvania for six years, and of that six years, two point seven five of those years, two years and nine months, have been under some form of government governor declared emergency order. This is his eleventh uh, declaration or. Exp- extension of a declaration and Mm -hmm. that just seems ridiculous to me but because not all our listeners are in pennsylvania let's move on to bigger picture stuff and um well is can you name one important issue that just has not been part of the national conversation at all well i would say that um I'll, I'll cheat on that question just a little bit because right now my number one issue is law and order. It was not back in September when I started my campaign. Now it is because of all the things we just talked about. But now having having jumped from there, um, my one of my top issues is health and health care reform or health care improvement. And that's 
I still think that's very important. Unfortunately, it's fallen down the list from where where I started back in September. But right now, for example, my one is on order for all the right reasons. Number two is actually growing good jobs in the economy. I have a manufacturing background. I've been in in uh, industrial America for four decades working for three large companies. So I highly value manufacturing. And one of my positions is bringing back manufacturing from China um, for all the right reasons. Again, <laughs> around security, it would help our national security. It would help our our personal security, and it would help our job security. So that one's number two. I'll get back to health. <laughs> um, but health is one that I think we need to continue to talk about because um, every person's quality of life uh, ultimately is impacted by their own health. And with a, you know, when you look at the way our country has been going, uh, you can, clearly the Democrats want a single-payer system. Well, inherently, what we see uh, in other countries and what we have already started to see in our own country is that as you get closer and closer to a single-payer system, you have issues of accessibility, issues of quality, and issues of cost. So I think we need to prevail in these elections and start going the other way with regard to our health care system and introduce more choice, patient choice. Uh, we need to introduce competition or reintroduce competition. We need more transparency. Uh, we need tort reform. There's there's a number of things that we could do that would greatly enhance our our healthcare system and make it uh, much better for us both now and going forward. That all sounds like good stuff. And and I have to say one example of single payer system here in America would be the VA healthcare system, the Veterans Administration healthcare system. And I've been a member of the VA healthcare system for, uh, well, probably a couple of decades now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the care they provide is fine. I've never had any problem with the, with the care that I get. But uh, I'm sure you remember the VA scandal just a few years back where yes. the, the weight for mm-hmm. for treatment is is ridiculous sometimes. And right. now that that's been opened up to allow veterans to go to private facilities, it has gotten infinitely better. I mm-hmm. wanted to see a podiatrist just in the last month or so in order to get to a podiatrist within the VA system. I had to drive nearly three hours and wait nearly three months. So they sent me to one across town the next week. It was great. Yeah, that's fabulous. So, um, yeah, single, long overdue. Yeah, yes. Single payer mm-hmm. just doesn't look, we don't have a good, uh, track record of single payer here in America and nor does, well, anybody else in the country, in the world that I'm aware of. Right. No. Um, law and order again, I, you know, like I said, the Taurus 38 that's on my hip, uh, I didn't do that prior to the coronavirus or the Wuhan flu, as I usually call it, um, I just started carrying once all these emergency orders happened because I fear civil unrest far more than I do any virus. So, and apparently 5 million other people do too because 5 million new gun owners in the last three months or something like that. Well, you know, it's really been eye-opening to me. Um, Again, as you're out talking with people, it's it's actually fabulous that um, someone who literally 
six months ago was not a supporter of the Second Amendment. You know, they would have they would have given you the evil eye if they walked by your car and saw an NRA sticker on it. Now they not only are a supporter of the NRA and of the Second Amendment, but they've gone out now and purchased two guns and oh, they also have a concealed carry permit. Right. So it's it's amazing how quickly that has turned. But on the other hand, when you think about us as humans, one of the most basic um, emotions is security. And if we feel like we are not secure, that disrupts our whole life. It dominates our life. And that's where we are right now. People, again, they're either concerned, alarmed, or terrified. And that's going to drive them to vote in November. That's that's Maslow's uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs right there. I mean, that's exactly right. Security knocks you back down to level two when until, you know, five months ago, past food and food and shelter. uh, That's next. Security is is second on the ladder. Right. Yep. On the pyramid. And six, you know, five or six months ago, we were working on level five and then quite suddenly we're back to level two. Now, since we, we brought up the Second Amendment. Can you uh, define or put a point on your level of support to the Second Amendment? Absolutely. I'm, I'm a staunch supporter of it. Um, I think it's, it's just, again, the basic defense of oneself and one's family. We have the right to keep and bear arms. I go so far as to say if it wasn't for the Second Amendment, I really believe that we would not have any of the other amendments at this point. It's the Second Amendment that has kept us free these last 244 years. And it's the only thing that stands between us and the tyrannical government. So I will, I will defend the Second Amendment to my last breath. Good, I agree with you. Uh, I'm, I can't remember who said it now, but you know the Second Amendment's there to to protect the rest, or in case the First Amendment doesn't work out. I, I'm mm-hmm. a big believer in the Second Amendment as well. <clears throat> Pardon me. Do you have any uh, restrictions to that? Uh, I, right now, the big push on these so-called assault weapons. Um, do you have any limits to your support of the Second Amendment? No, I think at this point um, that they call certain weapons assault weapons. If you know what you're talking about, they're not assault weapons. Uh, I think we have rules and laws in place today that if they were followed, that, that's fine. Uh, I think with some of the issues that we get into, they're more social issues and things that we we need to deal with at the at the core issue itself. And by by trying to use some form of gun control, that will not affect the outcome. So, you know, my my other statement around the Second Amendment is I don't want to give a centimeter. Uh, I I just refuse to. We 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 don't want to start down any slippery slope. So I will I will stand firm and not give up one centimeter. All right, that's pretty clear. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't like ambiguity. I'm an engineer. <laughs> nice, but I, I don't know how how well you're going to do in politics if you don't like ambiguity. Well, we need to change. That's why uh, you know, I I believe very strongly that we need more true. Uh, problem solvers in Washington, in Harrisburg, in all levels of government. And that's, I like the model where you live your life, you raise your family, you have your career, 
you gain from all those experiences and then you give back towards the end. So that's what I'm trying to do. I think we need to have people like I've had a lifetime of problem solving. I've, I've built organizations. I've led strong, successful teams. I've solved many complex problems over the last 40 years in industry. I mean, literally at work, you're solving a problem every 15 to 20 minutes. They just, they just range in scope, but it's really common sense solutions is what we need. And I, I just believe very strongly that there, there's no problem that we can't overcome if people really want to solve it. So it's, it's more a case of having the, the wherewithal to fight through. And that's what I hope happens here in November. It, I, I hope that we retain the presidency. I hope we, we actually increase the margin in the Senate and that we take the House back and then this time do something with it because the previous few times that we held all three of those, uh, we did not act intelligently and put forth good policies and initiatives that um, Americans really understood. Uh, we tended to fight and not do anything, and therefore we weren't uh, we, we didn't really fulfill our mandate that the, the people gave us. Okay, well, you said uh, common sense solutions to problems. Again, I, I don't know how that's going to work in politics, but you know, I like your, I like the way you're thinking. Um, <laughs> one of the biggest problems in my eyes, you know, I'm a small government guy. I, I think that uh, our federal government has has far, far overreached, and one of the byproducts of that is $26.7 trillion worth of debt as of this morning. What's a common sense solution? How do you tackle $26.7 trillion in debt? So same way you eat an elephant one bite at a time. (laughs) So, um, so the, my solution to that is not to do anything abruptly because our economy, even when we thought it was good, uh, our economy is still relatively uh, sensitive, maybe not as robust as what most people think, and, and can't really take a shot. So my solution is uh, a form of incrementalization where, in essence, I believe, especially to your point, if we get the government off the backs of, of businesses and people, I think that we could sustain three, maybe three and a half percent growth a year. So I think the answer is allow that to happen. And, and Donald Trump has shown over the last three years that that can happen um, and, and it can be sustained. Maybe more. Who knows? But then I think the other key element is we have to stop increasing spending to the level that we do every year. If, if we continue with 3 4 6% growth of federal spending every year, we're just perpetuating the problem. So my proposal is allow the economy, have the economy grow at roughly three or so percent, but then limit the growth of federal uh, spending to maybe something on the order of half a percent. I mean, personally, I would like to see just cap it, period. I don't know if that really will ever fly, but I think if we cap it at maybe half a percent, so there is some some growth, but limited growth. In essence, the differential will allow you over a relative few years to grow into a balanced budget. And if you continue that, you'll soon start to create surpluses, which can be used to start to pay back the debt. If you had a plan like that and showed the financial community that you were serious about it and maintained it, I think there would be um, enough confidence in the financial markets that we would be able to 
one, do it and do it in a way that would keep interest rates relatively low. Okay. Well, uh, time has just flown by and we've got less than a minute left in this first segment. Um, I don't know what your rest of your day works. Do you have time to uh, stick around for the second segment? Sure. I still have yeah, a bunch of questions to. we didn't get to yet. All righty. Um, <laughs> I, w- I want to talk about in, in the second segment, I want to ask you about a few movements that are out there uh, on the conservative side of politics. And I think we should probably touch on at least a little bit of the uh, social issues. I mean, you're you're running for a pretty big job. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So we'll uh, we'll be back here at uh, Liberty Lighthouse on Mojo Five O, and we'll continue our conversation with uh, House of Representatives candidate John Emmons. And uh, well, see you in about two minutes, folks. You're listening to Liberty Lighthouse on Mojo 5 Radio. Hi, I'm Peter Serafine, host of the Liberty Lighthouse on the Mojo 5 Radio Network. I got my start in politics when I got so frustrated with progressive society that I wrote a short book. Progress? Really? My book is a quick look at the past, current, and future state of progressive culture and progressive government. I urge every liberty-loving American to read Progress Really. Pick up your copy for less than $5 by clicking the Books tab at liberty-lighthouse.com. This Second Amendment moment is brought to you by Hunter's Warehouse at 130 West High Street in downtown Belfont, Pennsylvania. When the government was closing businesses, Hunter's Warehouse was open. When ammunition was out of stock everywhere, including online, Hunter's Warehouse had it. With thousands of firearms and truckloads of ammunition in stock, no wonder people drive for hours to visit Hunter's Warehouse. Go to Hunter'sWarehouse.net for all of your Second Amendment needs. Welcome back to Liberty Lighthouse with Peter Seraphine. Join the conversation now. Call or text 64MyRights. Okay, we're back, and we have congressional candidate John Emmons with us from the uh, 6th District of Pennsylvania. And before we get back into uh, the, the grilling of the candidate, I, I want uh, John to be able to put out his contact information. So how can we find you, John? How can we support you no matter where in the country we are? Because I'm in Pennsylvania, but I am not in your district, so I can't vote for you. What else could we do? Well, uh, the best way to connect with us is to go to emmonsforcongress.com. Same Emmons for Emmons for Congress also works on Facebook. So it's Emmons, E-M-M-O-N-S, F-O-R, Congress, obviously. Um, .com will get you to my website. Just Emmons for Congress on uh, Facebook will get you to our Facebook site. So you can go on there. And um, probably for people not in the district, the, uh, the the two greatest things they could do is, on the one hand is donate to help us get our message out over the next two months. And then secondly, if you happen to have friends or family in Chester County or Southern Berks County, uh, give them a shout and um, 
you know, put in a good word for us. And, and actually, the, the third thing, which would be helpful, too, is when you go to our Twitter page or go to our Facebook page, like, share, uh, all those things, and then that will help build our following, and that will help contribute as well. Absolutely. Get the word out. Um, and, and speaking, uh, you said Twitter. Uh, it's really funny. I became aware of you because either you or somebody on your staff, somebody, your Twitter, you know, your Emmons for Congress Twitter profile followed my show profile. And I was like, wait, who's this guy? So I looked it up and found out who you were. And I'm like, I think I want to talk to him. <laughs> yes, we, we have a concerted campaign that uh, we, we're building our presence in both to uh, where we're now into four figures and growing. So um, it's been an active campaign, but uh, it, it's the right thing to do. I'm a physical conservative. Uh, we're trying to run a frugal campaign, and by, we have a we have literally now dozens and dozens of volunteers, and some of those are working on building out our social media presence. Good. Well, since we're talking about social media, I, I'm sure you know that the social media giants have uh, have a little bit of uh, protections, kind of like you know you mentioned tort reform earlier. They have they've kind of got. Uh, liability protections like tort re- tort protections because they get treated. Oh my goodness! I should learn to speak <laughs> if I'm going to have a radio show. Um, they get treated uh, treated as curators of information rather than publishers of information, so they can't be sued for what people say. But the way that they go through and uh, pick and choose what can and can't be on their site based on what seem to be very arbitrary rules kind of puts that that protection in in uh, question. Should they be considered publishers or should they be considered curators? Do you have thoughts on that topic? Yeah, I think I think they ought to be responsible for what they're doing. They they especially with the way that those platforms have grown in regard to size and ability to influence and the way that they can influence public opinion by the practices that they um, undertake, I think most definitely they, they need to be held accountable to that. So you're thinking uh, that maybe they should be treated as publishers rather than curators if they're going to, yes. if they're going to continue that. Absolutely. That, yeah. Yep. I would tend Absolutely. to agree. If mm-hmm. they're, if they're going to start marking stuff as fake or putting on their, their fact check stuff, which is, some of it's just really funny. I anyway, um, yeah, I think they should be treated as publishers. So I agree with you for there. All right, well, absolutely. Since we're in the social realm of things here, let's stick with that. And uh, the the big push right now in the social world is is systemically racist police forces and systemically racist America. And oh my God, everything is racist. What are your thoughts mm-hmm. on that? Well, I, I just don't buy it. Um, you know, I would be the first to say that, um, are there, are there still, you know, small, you know, are there individuals, are there potentially small pockets here and there, uh, where racism still exists? I would say yes. I think that probably will continue on virtually forever. You know, whenever you have a distribution of people, you're going to have some of that, you know, very small percentage, but you're going to have people that would tend to engage in that. But I think that's the issue. It's such a small piece. I don't think you can call it systemic racism. I think it's a misnomer to do so. It's, it's actually it's a political agenda to do that. 
Um, now, and I'm not just saying that from my own personal experience, um, I have over the, the last 40 years, I've lived or have worked in seven states and on three continents. And I have seen very few, if any, examples of racism. So you know, I've been I've been in Oklahoma, I've been in Texas, I've been in Iowa, I've been in uh, Illinois, I've been in uh, Pennsylvania, New York, Delaware, New Jersey, and uh, I just I haven't seen it. But uh, I wouldn't be so naive as to say there aren't some pockets. But again, to to call it systemic racism and then to leverage that and um, try to have a very strong agenda of division, and that's that's. Now, quite honestly, that's what this is. The Democrats are a party of division. They they want to pit, you know, identity politics. They want to pit one individual against another, make someone a, a victim, and then be a savior. And I think that all flows together. And I just think it's it's wrong. And I think, quite honestly, if we as a people uh, could resist talking about it like that and misrepresenting reality, I think it would. It would heal the um, those other areas to some degree that um, you know remain small pockets, and I think it's just divisive to keep bringing it up and and talking about it constantly because I just I don't think it really represents what's happening in this country. When you look at this country, we're the most diverse country in the world, and yeah, do we have our issues? Yes, but we as a country tend to learn from those things. And over time, correct them. Every generation tends to be better and better. So I think it's it's a sad thing, but the the whole argument around systemic racism is is being used to to divide people and uh, not bring people together. Okay. Well, I did an entire hour show on the idea of systemic racism about five weeks ago. And I went all the way back to the founding of our, actually before the founding of America, and used history and used the progress that we've made, and uh, well, bits of bits of history that people aren't necessarily aware of. I, they don't understand the word systemic. Is is my conclusion? Mm-hmm. Is they really don't know what the word systemic means because, you know, it's not systemic. Right. Right. Systemic is an integral part of the system of the country. Exactly. Which obviously it's just the opposite. Right. I mean, even even if you go back to 1861, how many people died in order to do away with slavery? Somewhere between six and seven hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I would agree. Um, let's see here. Next question that I have written down. Uh, how about the Electoral College? What are your thoughts about the Electoral College of the United States? I think it was a stroke of genius. I mean, when you think about what the what the framers did uh, and to help balance between large states and small states and, and what have you, just their, their foresight and their knowledge is, is phenomenal. And by creating the electorate, they they gave states like Delaware and Rhode Island more of a chance to have a say over states like California and New York. So I I think it's something that should be uh, retained. I, I get very concerned when I see states trying to chop away at it and either move towards uh, a pure democracy or even 
um, basically assigning their electoral college votes to whoever um, the, the the highest vote getter has. So I I really think it's a good system, uh, and I think that we should do everything we can to resist changes to it. Well, the system uh, as it exists now gives the power to the states to decide how they award their electoral votes. And right. it's the state's rules that's, in my opinion, uh, what most people who don't like the Electoral College, it's the state rules that are upsetting them, the all-or-nothing rules that have been around for a while. And I understand that argument. I mean, if you look here in, in our state of Pennsylvania, you've got a, a pretty blue area around Philly, a pretty mm-hmm. blue area around Pittsburgh, a little pocket of blue right about where I am here in, in central Pennsylvania near the near Penn State University. Big surprise. And uh, the, most of the rest of the state is red. Mm-hmm. So Pennsylvania is an all or nothing state. We have 18 electoral votes and, you know, whoever wins the state wins all 18 votes. Um, I actually would support an idea that a proportionately allocated electoral votes, you know, allocate them by district or allocate them, you know, by percent of the popular vote or something like that. But that doesn't change the electoral college system itself. So I'm I'm agree with you. I think it was a stroke of genius. Yeah, and I think to your point, um, it's as you as you start to consider those other things, there's there's pluses and minuses to them. And what's always difficult is to be able to predict exactly what might happen under certain circumstances. So if you take Pennsylvania, where winner takes all. While that can be problematic for Republicans with with places like Philadelphia, when you stop and consider, there are still plenty of votes out there to overcome that. The issue is, will people get out and vote? And one of my favorite sayings is that bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. When you consider that of our sportsmen and Second Amendment people, we have 30 percent that aren't registered to vote. Uh, same for um, folks, uh, people of faith. When you think about our churches, again, pretty much the same thing. About 30 or so percent of the people who sit in the pews every week aren't registered to vote. So I believe that if, you know, it's, there's still a responsibility on us, we the people, to be engaged and to um, stand up and be heard. And if we did that, then even if you have a, a situation like um, Philadelphia, we can still overcome it without creating other potential unknown issues that um, we may regret that we did. Okay, fair enough. I mean, there's always unintended consequences to any change. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move on to the environment, global warming, global cooling, client climate change, what, you know, whatever they're calling the catastrophe nowadays. Uh, where do you stand on, on uh, Mother Earth? Well, my stance on Mother Earth, I'm, I'm a strong believer that um, we have an obligation. It's our responsibility to hand off a better world to the next generation. Uh, one of the things that I refer to myself as is an environmental conservationist. Now, Having said that, I'm a chemical engineer by training, and I've been in industry for the last 40 years. I actually believe that I'm, I'm, I'm 
strongly opposed to things like the Green New Deal. People don't understand how bad the elements of the Green New Deal are. Uh, people really don't have an appreciation that our lives, our standard of living is largely based on cheap, abundant energy. And if something happens that we create ourselves with something like a Green New Deal, or if something happens uh, within our system, uh, how that will dramatically change our lives. So I believe more in a path of conservation. So I've, I've lived that in my own life, you know, going back to when I was a kid growing up on a small farm. We didn't waste anything. As a young adult, we were some of the first people to uh, to recycle. And uh, you know, for the last 15 years, I've driven a Prius. In fact, I, I may be one of the few people in the country that have a Prius with a Second Amendment, an NRA <laughs> sticker on the back. But you know, when you think about it, it's it's perfect because uh, being conservative at home, you conserve electricity, you conserve uh, other aspects of energy, and you, we taught our kids to do that. So right. when they leave the room, they'll turn their thermostats down at night, that type of thing. At work, we do the same thing. I mean, I, I give my plants a challenge every year of reducing their electricity footprint by 3 to 5% a year. And uh, we have waste reduction, and so we're re- using fewer materials all the time. And I really believe that as you do that, it's the best of both worlds because it's good for business, but it's also good for the environment, and you lessen your footprint. So I think the two stand hand in hand, and, and one is reinforcing of the other. And it happens naturally as opposed to some type of arbitrary plan like the Green New Deal that would just totally disrupt our uh, our whole energy complex. And the other thing that's interesting about this with, you know, I, I know fracking uh, can be an emotional issue with some people, but if, if people really understood what's happened, we have actually reduced our carbon footprint and we've done so at a faster rate than what we would have done under the Paris Accord by using natural gas, much of which is coming from Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia. So, again, something like that, we actually have reduced our carbon footprint, and it's good for people, it's good for businesses, and it works all the way around. But if you have to be compelled arbitrarily by a government mandate, we know what happens there. It, uh, there's an imbalance in the system, and people will suffer, uh, such as we're we're seeing in California now, where the electrical demand can't hold up to um, the supply, can't hold up to the demand. Right, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with striving for clean air and clean water and a clean a clean planet. Uh, mm-hmm. And I completely agree that uh, a government regulation is is almost never the right answer for right. Well, any problem ever. Um. Right. Now, to your, to your point, it, it, again, like in my plants, when I moved into my plants about four years ago, uh, some of those were their paper plants. So we were using a million gallons of water a day. Uh, we've reduced that down to 600,000 gallons now, and we're still taking it down. So it, it can be done. We put water back in the river cleaner than what we take out. So it's very responsible. And I guess one last point I'll make, I think from a from a conservation standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, I think we should focus more on things that we could do right now, today. For example, habitat destruction. Uh, there's many things that we can do to uh, help avoid 
habitat destruction. And in the same way, extinction of species. If you if you are able to make an impact on habitat destruction, you also make an impact on on uh, extinction of species. I think the 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 term climate change is used for the same reason the term systemic racism is used. I think it's used just to to instill that division. Um, personally, I I think division is is the uh, well, it's the That's pillar. The goal. Yeah, it's mm-hmm, it's yes. the pillar of the Democratic Party um, because mm-hmm. they're taking their cues from the Communist Manifesto. But that's my own personal opinion. Um, <laughs> I got two more currently open running projects that I want your opinion of. One of them is House Resolution Number Twenty Five, which is the Fair Tax Bill. Yes, um, I'm not. I will admit I'm not familiar exactly with what that bill says, but what I will tell you is I'm a, I'm a strong supporter of the concept of the fair tax. Um, I first got introduced to it some 10 years or so ago when I, when I read the book by Neil Bortz. And um, I like that idea. The, the idea that you would have a consumption tax as opposed to an income tax, I think would be very healthy. Um, one of the, the key things that I like about the fair tax is that it, it actually broadens the tax base. And what, what, if people aren't familiar with the concept and the fair tax, you know, when you think about the income tax system we have today, there's elements of the society that basically are under the radar and, and aren't taxed. So the, the cash economy and the illegal economy aren't, aren't taxed. With the, the concepts associated with the fair tax, when even if you were a, um, a drug dealer and you go out and buy a washing machine, guess what? You're going to pay a tax. So you, you end up being brought into that. What most people don't realize is that, that, uh, that part of the economy that's under the radar, that represents between uh, roughly 20 or so percent of the economy. So if we were to move to the fair tax, we would actually broaden the tax base and bring bring more elements of our our total society into um, contributing to the treasury. Okay, so n- next year after you're elected, uh, and they have to you know new tax uh, new uh, uh, legislative year, and they reintroduce the fair tax bill again, uh, which they've done like every year for the last ten years or something like that. We can count you on board as signing on board. Yeah, absolutely. And I have another little angle on this, too. Um, because because the fair tax would, could be thought of as a it's a consumption tax or a sales tax. Uh, an, another way that we could do this, uh, because people, when you hear the arguments about their taxes, well, how would you do it? Uh, what's the mechanism? What, what about this? What about that? Another way of, of doing it, um, maybe in parallel or who knows, maybe exclusively, if if you were to reduce the size of the federal government, which many of us want. Oh, you can stop the, right there. I'm on board. <laughs> well, now think about this. So as you reduce the, the federal government, push responsibility back to the states and local, how do, the, how do states fund things? Well, they, have, they already have the sales tax mechanism set up. So if you pushed 
that responsibility back to, to the state and local level, um, you could actually use the mechanism for the sales tax to generate income from the state level to pay for the things that the state should be not getting it from the federal government. So to me, that's one, one interesting point is that we already have a mechanism set up to do it, but you can't do it if the federal government spends as much as they do. You have to shift that power back. And if you did, then it, it really has a, a potential for working. Sounds good and to me. While, while, while I'm on my soapbox, to me, there is one amendment that I dislike and will never change my opinion on it, the 16th Amendment. I think that's insidious. When, when you as a federal government can reach into someone's wallet and extract money and then sit there and dangle it in front of them and say, if you want this back, here's what you have to do. I think that is, is terrible. It's insidious. And I would love to see us move more in the direction we talked about with the fair tax and pushing things back to the state and try to move as far as we can, we can from that system that allows the, the federal government to hold us hostage with our own money. Man, I wish I could vote for you. I, <laughs> I think that the 16th and 17th amendments, both um, 16th being income tax and 17th being uh, direct election of senators, I think that those two, both brought about by the first progressive movement in our country, were the beginning of the end, the, the beginning of the socialist takeover of our government. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, I'm all for getting rid of both of those two. And all right, the last question I had written down in my notes is your opinion of the Convention of States project. Yes, yes. This is an interesting one because I've watched Mark Levin um, kind of struggle with this one over time. And um, even um, there's some some folks down in Texas that uh, I I listen to who have been back and forth on it. I I come down on the side that I would still support it. Um, I think it's another... uh, Part of the genius of our Constitution is that there is a way of affecting the government, of going around the government. So if things ever get bad enough, if we ever get frustrated enough with what the federal government is doing or not doing, we still are the United States of America. And we can exercise the Convention of States to alter the Constitution. So, you know, typically the debate is, well, can you control it? Well, who knows? But if things ever get bad enough, and I don't think we're too far away right now, if if we feel that we need to have a convention of states, I believe that um, reason will prevail. I think it's being guided by the Lord, and a good outcome will come. So I, I recognize that there is a potential risk, but all things considered, I would put my faith in the American people and the representatives that they have collectively, and I would I would support a convention of states. I I agree. Um, actually, I wrote a book about two years ago, and and I have pledged all profits from that book to the Convention of States project. Um, I I honestly don't see the harm in having a conversation because even if the convention you know does do the whole go crazy what do they what do they call it a runaway convention even yeah, if they rogue, do, yeah. even mm-hmm. if they do turn rogue and start writing amendments that were not part of their original charter 
um, those amendments still have to be ratified by two thirds right. of the states. So right. if they go rogue, they won't get ratified and no harm, no foul. Um, right. I don't see the harm in getting representatives from every state together to at least have a conversation. And that's all the Convention of States really is. That's right. I think it would be healthy, a, a good, healthy, open, transparent debate. Uh, that, that's what we need. Uh, we're, our country is suffering from the fact that we aren't having good, open, honest debate right now and not for too long of a period of time. We need that. Well, Mr. John Emmons, thank you very much for your time today. Is there anything else that you want to add? No, I think, um, you know, I think we stand at a, a very critical juncture in our history. To me, this election coming up is, um, is equal to maybe even a whisker more important than 1860. And, um, you know, I clearly think we stand at a fork in the road. And if by chance we don't prevail, then uh, I'm very, very concerned that we have lost our country. Um, but I have faith in the people. I believe there's a silent majority out there that is more silent than ever, more of a majority than ever. And we, will, we won't know that until after November 3rd. But I believe the people will stand up. And um, now, while we may be able to make a, a surge back to the right, I don't think so. But I think we can stop the momentum and we can we can continue the good policies that we've seen over the last three years and continue to let those saplings grow into strong trees so that hopefully by 2024, we have more and more people can see the benefit of good policies, good conservative policies and how it has impacted their lives and then maybe continue that on for another four or eight years and let those types of policies continue to make uh, life better and better for us, not only here, but around the world. So I remain an eternal optimist and uh, we'll work very hard now over the next 60 some days. And um, God willing, we will have a good outcome in early November. All right. That's all the time we have. So thank you again, John Emmons and find Emmons for Congress.com and at Emmons for Congress on Facebook. Uh, good luck to you. Support this man as best you can, my my fellow patriots and freedom fighters here on the Mojo Five O Radio Network. Um. Well, until next. Thank you week, very much, Peter. Much yeah. appreciated. Until next week, protect your liberties. Once they're gone, there's no getting them back. God bless America. Thanks for listening to Liberty Lighthouse with Peter Seraphine. Be sure to sign up at liberty-lighthouse.com to download Peter's free ebook from the file share page. And don't forget to call or text 64MyRights to leave comments for the show. That's 646-974-4487.